This is Annie Berglund, cat owner, struggling vegan, and teacher of animal ethics. And you're listening to Seeing Animals, a little project to highlight the lesser known spaces where animals exist. Because I believe that when we start seeing animals, we start caring about them. All right, you're joining me here today at Bethel University, which is a little bizarre. I was, um, I'm used to going and driving to like Green Bay, Wisconsin or Marengo, Iowa, but today we're on the home turf and we are because Bethel is a site that hosts some apiaries through the U of M. And with me is Bridget Mendel. Um, and Bridget is a program manager for the B Squad at the U of M. So happy to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, um, I, I kind of love that we're talking about bees because in our class, we we have some readings related to bees in warfare and bees used as metaphors uh, for combat, for fighting to the death, for self-preservation. And I feel like I read this tweet the other day and I tried for like a half hour to search for it. Um, <laughs> it was like a really embarrassing amount of time searching through the old likes on my <laughs> Twitter. Um, but it said something like, bees have the ultimate comeback story. And that like decades ago, <laughs> there's kind of this mentality of fear of bees, right? And like mm-hmm. people are, are being deathly allergic or, or scared of, of being stung. Um, there's the metaphors of military engagement. But now that it seems like the narrative has switched and everyone's saying bees are going to save us. Mm-hmm. Bees are going to save the world. So I am happy to have you here and kind of dispel any of that or speak to any of that. But let's chat about your beginnings in the field. So why, Bridget, do you love bees? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so I think your intro, weirdly, is a good segue into how I got into bees. Oh, um, I actually, I've always been a gardener, and I've always worked on you know organic farms and everything growing up. And it occurred to me in college that bees were a big part of that system, but I didn't really know why. I just knew that they were there and that they they pollinated things. Um, so that was partly why I got into them. But meanwhile, I was um, I was at Northwestern majoring in creative writing, mm. and I had a professor, Eula Biss, who basically just said, "Pick a topic for <laughs> for your final, you know, your your thesis project." And I chose bees because I had this interest. Um, and because they show up in myth, in literature, in poetry, in mm. art, all the time, specifically honeybees, are just everywhere throughout history. Mm. And pretty much anywhere in the world you can find you can find examples of bees that are being used to kind of explain liminal spaces. So, you know, bees being portals to the underworld or bees being communicators or ambassadors between heaven and earth or earth and the underworld or humans and non-humans and they kind of live in this place of like you know like kind of like the rose they're just like so easy to make metaphors out of because Mm. they can sting you but they also produce the sweetest of all foods and they live in a dark cavity and, and yet we associate them with the sun and with flowers and with light and so they kind of always are kind of bridging worlds in a way. And so that's what interested me. And it interested me that they've always been used by writers to explain different things, you know, and and, and wrongly a lot of times, like Aristotle back in those days, he was like, they're definitely, you know, a patriarchal society. And we know, obviously, they're not. But, you know, so it's sort of interesting to see how every kind of era and age has taken the honeybee and kind of used it for their own metaphorical needs, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's kind of how I got into it. And then once I started actually apprenticing with beekeepers and learning about it, I just became more and more fascinated. I 
now I've been working with bees for about 10 years and I feel like I know very little. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, just, it never really ends the learning part. Yeah. Um, I would love, and kind of before we start out with anything, and this is definitely putting you on the spot, but were there any like very surprising facts that you, or, or maybe misconceptions, for instance, I learned that there are solitary bees yeah. that, that don't live in like a hive community. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Totally. So bees is a very broad term. There are about 20,000 species of bees worldwide, okay. some of which are more are, are more endangered than others. Um, honeybees are not endangered um, because they are a type of bee that we humans have always managed like for a very, very long time. They've, we've had a relationship with honeybees and we understand them enough to be able to basically help them. And we have a lot of input into the way they live. But um, they have become kind of a representative for all bees. And more and more we are talking about how um, most bees are solitary. Most types of bees live alone in, in twigs, in, in stems, and in like little tiny cavities by themselves. And they do not live in a social community. Um, some other species of bees, like bumblebee, types of bumblebees, live in nests. They have a, a, a social, they're also social insects. So there's a huge variety, but most, most bees are solitary. Yeah. Okay. So that's definitely a misconception. And they certainly won't bother you. They're totally harmless. And <laughs> Um, they need us, even though we interact with them very little. So Sure, yeah. Um, and then there's the difference. I, there's like terminology of managed bees versus native bees. So mm-hmm. managed bees would be those that are kept by beekeepers. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of different terms and they get confusing because um, even the word wild um, versus native, I mean, it gets confusing because because of how we live in our world. Like what does wild even mean really? Mm-hmm. Managed bees are bees that are that humans take care of essentially. And so a lot of people would call those um, livestock even, like they're, they're bees that are, are part of our agricultural system. Um, and those would be honeybees and different species of bumblebees. Some are more or less okay. difficult to manage. And I don't know a lot about um, rearing bumblebees or using them for pollination, like services, as they say. But yeah, so it's only a few species of bees that are, are managed and the rest are are, are wild and are out in the prairies or whatever, you know, your context is wherever you live. Solitary bees have evolved with particular relationships to native species. Okay, great. Yeah. So moving forward, um, <laughs> we'll be, we'll try to distinguish between native bees if we yeah. talk about that versus managed. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the importance of pollinators in our environment? There, there are t-shirts, there are mugs, like there are things yeah. all over that say protect our pollinators. Well, why should we protect them? Yeah. Why are they important? Yeah, so um, pollinators, let's see, um, if you think about our, like the web of life, if you can imagine a picture with, you know, all the little arrows that are pointing to, you know, plants, you know, the, these animals eat the plants, and then these other animals eat those other animals, and then maybe humans are eating those top animals, or however you want to see this web, uh, where all of these different life forms are interconnected. Bees are, are I shouldn't, I should say pollinators are basically at the base of that web along with plants. So plants and pollinators have this symbiotic relationship. Pollinators evolved with flowering plants. Um, uh, Bees evolved with flowering plants, and different pollinators have um, kind of taken advantage of the way plants function um, and what plants need. Um, That relationship between pollinators and plants is the basis for all life. So without pollinators, 
all of our flowering plants, which is most plants that we we tend to use and eat and um, and that are part of these really complex systems with all other animals and all other life forms. They all depend on that pollination, um, that relationship. Yeah. So then when we hear about how maybe pollinators need protection, that maybe um, that population is, and you were saying honeybees, that's not, they're not endangered but other yeah. other bees could be is that yeah so i mean a little i think a lot of people started um noticing pollinators because you know about a decade ago um honeybees got in the news and they're such a fascinating and like magnetic species and they're like larger than life and they're poetic and they're complicated and they're social and so people they got a lot of attention. And so some people call them like the canary in the coal mine or the an indicator species or mm-hmm. a representative or whatever. For whatever reason, people sort of got aware of the, the, the issues with pollinators through honeybees. And it's true that it's really, really hard to keep honeybees healthy now. There's a, like a lot of issues and a lot of them are the same issues that are um, facing a lot of the native pollinators, like lack of habitat, sure. um, overuse of pesticides, you know, different diseases and pests that 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 interact negatively with the species. So, just to say, honeybees. People think of bees; they think of honeybees, and so mm-hmm. that's why a lot of people think we have to save the honeybees. Or when they say we have to help the bees, they're thinking of honeybees. But the the conversation is is shifting this awareness that there's all these other species, and that those bees, they're more difficult to help because we don't interact with them. It's hard to find them in the landscape, and. Mm-hmm. Um, We can't go in and like treat them for diseases or anything like that. So can can native bees keep up with the demands of such an integral system or and and like habitat needs of humans and non-human animals? Is that something where managed bees come in to try to uh, and try to manufacture some of this this demand for pollination? So managed bees are an integral part of our agricultural system mm. so a lot of our crops our fruit and uh, fruits and nuts and everything like that are pollinated by managed sure. honeybees sometimes bumblebees okay um but a, there's a lot of other types of bees that are really really good pollinators if they exist. <laughs> so <laughs> so one of the things we promote a lot is planting for all bees. So, you know, planting if you're a beekeeper, you should be planting for your honeybees, just like you would provide food for your other pets or livestock. I'm bringing this non-native um honeybee into a maybe an urban landscape or a farm landscape. Um, I need to understand the the biology of this bee, how how they forage, and then provide for that in whatever way, whether I'm planting or I'm promoting planting or whatever I'm doing. But if you're someone who is not a beekeeper but just wants to um, attract bees to your garden, you don't need to go get honeybees. You could say, I um, I'm just going to plant a lot of native plants around my garden or in my garden or sure. intermix and attract those native bees who also live within those stems or in like little nesting areas in the garden. So if they're able to have food and habitat in your um, garden radius, they're going to be there and they're going to be pollinating. Yeah. Um, In terms of our big monoculture um, crop system, yes, we definitely need honeybees for that. And it's, you know, it's a huge part of the system and it's a part, I mean, certainly at our honeybee lab, we work a lot with beekeepers and, you know, how to um, how to support their honeybees, how to keep bees healthy. Um, um, yeah, for, for 
for a lot of pollination needs, then the the native bees can do that work. It's just that they need to be supported and they need food and they need housing essentially to be able to, because they're not, bees, honeybees will fly for five miles maybe to forage and they forage differently because of where they um, evolved to, to live in, in like more monoculture landscapes. That's why they're really good at pollinating monocultures because they'll go in and say, all right, we're doing almonds today and they'll just pollinate the almonds. Native bees tend to, they, you know, especially around here, they've evolved to be in like a prairie landscape. So they go from one species to another species of flower, maybe, or maybe they only like, maybe they're a type of bee that only likes one flower. Sure. Um, so they are a different kind of pollinator and they don't really fit well into the monoculture system that we depend on right now. Mm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of different. Those native bees, those solitary bees go for maybe quarter mile, half mile. So they have to be able to live where they're, where they're looking for food. They can't fly five miles. How easy then is it to beekeep? Because it, it feels like not every like average Joe Schmo can just become a beekeeper, yeah. right? And you guys have training programs at the Department yeah. of Entomology or, or at your apiaries around the cities. So what is that process like? Because um, it was a, it was alarming to me to think like, oh, I could just go become a beekeeper. Yes. Well, I probably, I don't know. Can I? Yes. You, I love that you asked that question and you and your alarm is very well justified. Okay. And it's complicated. Yes, we do. We do a lot of our work is supporting new beekeepers and making sure that they have the tools they need to keep their bees healthy. Mm. But there is a big misconception, A, that buying honeybees or getting honeybees is going to help solve the pollinator problem, and B, (laughs) that it's really easy. (laughs) And so it's complicated because I love bees, so it's hard to say don't do it, but it's a lot of work. And it's a lot of training. You really have to dig into this whole bigger system. So like, you know, you're bringing them into an artificial system and you have to be responsible. And it's it's not fun. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of biology. It's a lot of planning and treatments and it's expensive. It, yeah. It's a lot. And so it really is something that if you're going to do it, you got to put in the the work. And if you're not going to do it, there's things, there's way better ways to support bees and support pollinators. It's so much more work than just jumping on a trend. It right? is. <laughs> and there's these packets that are like kits at some one of those big stores sure. that say, just add bees. And oh. I'm like, no, don't just add bees. It's so much more than that. And, and honestly, the best way to do it is to have a, a really experienced mentor. Um, I certainly had um, worked with really experienced beekeepers for years before I ever went out on my own. Yeah. And I'm still like learning, you know, <laughs> so. For sure. And one of the fun things too about what you guys do uh, is that you not only train just um, interested people in beekeeping, right, and, and go through this program, but um, you also have this veterans beekeeping program. Mm-hmm. And and that's kind of one of the big reasons I wanted you to be here today too, because upon hearing it, I think I heard it in like a news article. Mm-hmm. And I was astounded. I didn't realize that this was something that existed, um, that there are mutual benefits for the veterans who are learning how to beekeep and and based on their experiences, it it might be like a therapeutic practice. Um, And and then for the bees as well. So could you tell us a little bit about this bee veterans program? Yeah, definitely. I'll just talk from my experience as a very anxious person. (laughs) It's very calming and... um, very tranquil experience. And I think part of it is how I'd explain it is just because there's so much going on and you are in the middle of thousands and thousands of stinging insects, 
Um, you have to be so in the moment. You have to be so mindful, essentially, and deliberate and slow. And you cannot just go in there and say, all right, I've got 10 minutes. You can, you know, you've really got to be everything you do is very careful and you cannot be distracted. Right. And so for me, I think a lot of it is just that that mindfulness. And of course, you're outside and you're um, it's you're usually pretty solitary. So you're able to um, hear this amazing like hum of of thousands and thousands of insects and the scents are kind of amazing if you think about like being in this inside a beeswax candle but like not getting burned um and it's it's just and you're smelling the the warm honey it's a very amazing experience yeah and fascinating because it's essentially you know it's another tangent but if you think about the bee colony as a super organism of this um if you think like if you think of our bodies as um you know, multicellular organism and the the bee body, the honeybee body as an organism that has multiple multicellular components in it. So all of these bees are working together kind of like the cells in our body. And so you open that up and you see like actually the progression of the the larvae and pupae towards the 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 actualized bee and you can see all that in on one frame of comb it's an amazing experience and it's i mean people are completely transfixed and you have to be really calm you know you can't just you know make sudden movements or run or anything right. like that or so, the reaction that we commonly have with bugs is like slap them yeah, away yeah exactly or... it's the opposite you just have to really say okay i am just going to be still and calm and so Within our, our bee squad program, we had a friend and a customer on whose property we kept bees, and he was a veteran. And we would have these conversations about this amazing experience of being with the bees and how, how, how helpful and healing he felt it was. Not in a, a medical sense, not in like uh, there is research on this or anything like that, but just in the sense of like he wished more people could have this experience. Um, and so he actually helped us start and fund our program where we're able to provide free beekeeping experiences and classes for veterans. And it's interesting because that's kind of why we started it. And we have a lot of plans and um, objectives for the future. And we don't want to say this is helpful. This is going to help your PTSD. This is going to be a therapy um, until we've really done those studies, uh, of course. But we also kind of have it as an opening, like, you know, as, as outreach people, we don't want to say like, this is what you need to know, or this is what you need, but kind of say, this is an opportunity. And then the community that comes in kind of amends the program a little bit and helps us to form it. For example, we started offering these classes and a lot of participants said, I'd, I'd like to bring my fam- a family member. I don't want to just come alone. Um, I don't want it to just be veterans. I like the idea that the 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 mentors are a mix. Maybe some of them are veterans and some of them aren't. So it's a little more um, of we're talking about bees. We're not going back into this um, mode of talking about the past or talking about their their experience. So they've really helped us form the program as we go forward. Right now, we have two apiary locations, one in Minneapolis at the um, Minneapolis-St. Paul Air, Airport Commission. They've partnered with us to provide a very big apiary and then one satellite place in Rochester where we provide these these free classes and we've gotten really good feedback and there's a lot of interest. And so right now we're trying to use that um, interest and some amazing um, donations that we've received recently to actually partner with different groups who are doing similar work and try to make this a little more of a formalized thing. Um, and then 
we'd love to get funding to study actually is this could this be a you know an alternative therapy or you know could this be actually helpful for anyone experiencing trauma or, or something like that but we we don't know at this point but we know a lot of our participants are excited to like think about that and to try it out so yeah I love that it grew very organically. Yeah, out of out of your personal experience too, and yeah, and thinking about yeah, like anxiety disorder or, uh, and I'm no psychologist, I'm not a therapist, yeah. but same, <laughs> um, but uh, a lot of the methods for coming out of anxiety is noticing the five yeah. senses and really grounding yourself in yeah. where you are because yeah. people with that with anxiety disorder tend to be living up in their head. Yeah, and so if you can come into a, a place of peace and understanding your surroundings and being mm-hmm. able to say like I see this I feel this I hear this what better place than with bees surrounding you right like but probably not easy at first yeah um it's funny too when you look at the bee squad team site and you're looking at all of bee members uh, or all the team members you guys have like bees going up your neck yeah and like onto <laughs> your face and that must take a lot to get used to yeah, yeah. and um I'm sure that you guys don't do that with the Bee Veterans Program, but no. is there, um, and maybe I'm off base on this, but is there any um, kind of like triggering effect that could potentially happen for veterans with working with bees? Yeah. And- yes. I think there's a lot of, there's so many things we that we we try to be aware of for this program. Maybe, you know, we use smoke to, to calm the bees. That could be a trigger. Um, we had one um, per, um, participant in the program who really, had a hard time just seeing death. He did not like seeing dead animals. And so maybe for him, he, but maybe he's not going to be a beekeeper, but he, he, he would drive for hours and hours to have this one experience of opening the colony or these few experiences. And so for him, it was worth it, Mm -hmm. but he maybe wasn't going to have like an, you know, a, a business himself. Um, so yeah, there's definitely people with, with things that, um, that could be triggering. And then on the other side, there's, there's physical um, differences that we also are interested in really working on. Like, what if you're in a wheelchair, or what if you can't lift too too much weight with your upper, you know upper body strength, or um, have some sort of um, physical disability where, like, the sort of um, kind of standardized hive equipment isn't working. So we had one veteran in our program who actually developed like a top bar hive, so it's like a longer colony. It's not great for this climate. Um, in terms of overwintering, but for for classes and for students, it's a way that you can kind of come up to it in a sitting position versus lifting those really, really heavy boxes. Um, And we were just at a conference where we were presenting about our our program at um, the American uh, Beekeeping Federation, and um, another woman in the audience said she was developing a similar um, kind of modified hive. So there's sure. like different physical modifications. Yeah, for Like I said, with smoke, like maybe not using smoke, even though that's kind of standard for beekeeping. Um, for, for, you know, for, that hasn't come up actually in our experience, but it could. And maybe other triggers as well. So yeah, for sure. And and we are very careful to to offer this experience without projecting any kind of like medical or psychological knowledge or anything like that, but opening it up and trying to find partners who might want to bring their expertise and kind of um, look at the program from that human side of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like the medical benefits aren't researched yet. Yeah. You're hoping. They're definitely not, but we're hoping because, and, and, and especially because 
These kinds of programs pairing um, veterans with bees are popping up all over the country. And Mm -hmm. a lot of them do say, like, this is therapeutic. And we we definitely wouldn't say that. But we're like, yeah, I get where you're coming from. And we'd love to be the ones to spearhead that. And also, I should just say it's so interesting. We, We discovered there's a history of this kind of collaboration between veterans and beekeepers going back to like World War One and maybe before. No way. Yeah. So and that was kind and and some of the programs I should say, the the current contemporary ones also focus on the economic possibilities. So like, you know, having a side business, making some income from honey. Mm. Can't really I mean it's it's hard to do these days, but um, back in the day, um, they were like I think federally funded programs where they were saying this is an occupation that there can be modifications. It's kind of solitary. It's kind of um, a, you're out in nature and it it's a good maybe source of income or a, a new occupation for people who are readjusting to civilian life. So there's that there's some amazing pictures actually of like old um, programs that they were saying for dis- disabled veterans. That was the term they used um, at that time. But um, yeah, so there is yeah. a history there of like maybe this this pairing is That's excellent. Do you guys yeah. have some of that history on your website at all? If we were no, I can about? share. Um, I can share some of the photos I dug up. Um, yeah. We have them in like some slideshows and stuff. But that'd be great. Yeah. I'd love that. Yeah. Are there any other programs like the veterans programs that you're really excited about being offered by B Squad? Um, yeah. So let's see. We have a bunch of different programs. Um, we really are the, you know, the outreach arm. So our job as the B squad is to really support any community that is interested in helping pollinators and, you know, how can they do it best? And so, I mean, I, I'm excited about all the programs, but I think <laughs> I'll just say for one, one thing I'm excited about is, um, actually, you know, working with homeowners and working with corporations who have an interest in be, you know, in changing their like land management practices, be it their, their gardens, their yards, their golf courses, whatever it is, um, to be more pollinator friendly. And so it's really, really fun to see those like actual changes and the, and, you know, people who are, um, in those positions of like, you know, managing or, or landscaping or whatever saying like, how can we become more pollinator friendly? And then, seeing how that connects to other um, ecological issues like water, uh, drought tolerance, or, you know, these other issues that helping pollinators actually will sort of automatically help. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're a a creative writing teacher as well. Yes, I am. That's my side job. (laughs) Does some of this, some of these topics kind of seep into your writing too? Um, Or as you're, I I think I saw that there's like an arts program that's put out by B-Squad. Yes, I'm definitely behind that one. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I love, we get a lot of, you know, questions and interest from different artists who are either, you know, already working on, you know, themes of pollination, pollination or environmental issues or who just for some reason need knowledge or want to collaborate. And so we try to always accommodate that. And I'm really interested in, those interdisciplinary collaborations and of course like for me the way bees are sort of featured in our in our um, creative or imaginative lives is like super interesting and important to me so yeah we've done a bunch of we recently had a really really cool talk where we had Marla Spivak who's a honeybee um, researcher Dr. Elaine Evans who is a, a native bee researcher and some different artists and poets and everything we all got in a room and we're talking about like bees in the imagination and like how we think about pollinators. It was so interesting and just yeah. hearing how scientists and artists 
differ in their perspectives and how that's exciting and interesting and oh, how yeah. they're maybe like serving different purposes in a way that at least their work is and then how we were sort of coming from similar places as well. So yeah, yeah, I love that program. And then we also have a program called um, Pollinator Ambassadors. And that's really exciting because that's a program where we're really looking to train the next generation of like pollinator advocates, whether they go into research or um, advocacy or farming or some other field. Um, we were, we're trying to expose like young people um, to work with pollinators or how pollinators might intersect or influence their, you know, other, other passions that they have. And so that's a really exciting program. I'm, I don't do a lot of the teaching of high school kids cause I don't, I don't know how, but, <laughs> but I love that we do it. And it's a really fun program to imagine and to think more and more how, you know, how do, how do pollinator issues, um, intersect with, you know, cl- um, climate change and um, yeah. these, you know, these bigger issues that we're all talking about, especially young people are like kind of championing. So, yeah. um, how to make pollinators part of that conversation. That's awesome. Yeah. So. And yeah, I love the marriage of science and arts in this too, because I think yeah. that that's where like some of the most profound advocacy can come from. Yeah. Because not only then do you have the research, but you also have this popular like media that, that can yeah. bring some of these issues yeah. to light. Um, thinking about how Nat Geo or other larger corporations will like partner with local artists um, to highlight some of the climate change issues yep. or um, – ecosystem destruction or whatever is happening. Yeah. Um, I love that, that that that's a program that exists. Yeah. And I think, I mean, people are affected by art in a really different way than hearing statistics. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it gets tiring to just be like, if we didn't have bees, like this is what the grocery store would look like. It would be really depressing and empty. And, you know, I feel like, it, I don't know, it gets redundant to only look at the importance of bees from an, eco- um, an economic perspective. Like why are bees important economically? Because they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but then why are they important for all these other reasons? It seems like... When I have discussions uh, with people about animals, because um, I force people into that a lot, <laughs> um, we as humans tend to equate things that are smaller, smaller living beings with less complexity. And that must really be irritating to like the U of M Department of Entomology, mm-hmm. right? And, and be experts like you um, who study the complicated patterns of communication, of social behavior, the intelligence and the many functions of the unique biology of, you said, 20,000 types of bees mm-hmm. and then however many <laughs> millions of insects there are. How do you respond to that type of mentality or what are some perspectives on bees particularly or insects in general that um, have changed drastically for you in your research kind of since that first paper that you wrote? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have a lot of reverence for, for, for all of these insects and I'm not an, ins- I mean, I don't like really love it. I'm not an entomologist. You right. know, I'm not like obsessed with yeah. all bugs or anything like that, but it just seems like they're, they're like air. I mean, if you think about all these, like if you think about, you know, the sort of fraction of the world that we see, and that there's all of these other hidden things, whether it's like how things live and function, like insects are all right. They're making that system happen. Yeah. You know, even though we literally, you know, some of them bother us and bees, you know, have can have a funny reputation of being really aggressive. But other than that, a lot of them are, are like invisible to us in our daily lives. And that just does. It's really hard to get people on board with caring because we care about things we can maybe look at in the eye or empathize with. But uh Right. But that's the challenge. And I think for me, I, I mean, just to mention water again, I think that reverence for water, I mean, it can be a, a spiritual thing. It can be a cultural thing. Um, certainly, a nece- you know, something you learn out of necessity for some people. But how can we have reverence for things that we don't 
you know, we don't, we aren't able to look in the eye and see as this like yeah. living thing yep. or this important thing. It's, I don't know. It's a, yeah, it's a challenge, just, I think. But, right. I think, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A challenge of disconnecting ourselves. It, some, it seems like sometimes we view ourselves as being over and above the ecosystem that we're yeah. in, not, not a part of it. Yeah. Um, and, and to notice that it's not just us on top of, but it's, it's us within yeah. and that within includes things that we don't always see. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's the perfect in is like, if we can learn about the system that we might be able to, you can ignore if you want. I mean, you don't have to like learn about the ecology of like a prairie or whatever, but when you do, then it becomes essential and then you care about it. Right. I mean, like anything, if you, if you, if you dig in, I mean, so that's really like, I mean, our strategy is definitely like education, you know, even, you know, showing people pictures of like the the diversity of insects and what they look like and all the colors and the metallic ones and the bright green ones. And, you know, I think that's sort of, then people start to care and they look at their landscapes differently. They look at their, their gardens differently. And uh, you just start to notice more, the more you, I guess, look, you know, the more you look, but yeah. It opens up like a a really beautiful, colorful world. Yeah. I wasn't there before or that we didn't notice before. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I, I try to like leave a little bit of time at the end to just talk about ways that we can help as listeners, as um, some of my students or myself, what would you say a point of action could be? Um, Whether it's trying to help pollinators in our native environments or um, just making sure that we're learning more about Mm -hmm. the ways that we impact um, pollinators, whether Mm -hmm. it's intentional or unintentional or Mm -hmm. obvious or very hidden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, that's a, that's a really nice question to end with. I, I think, um, again, the first way in is just looking and noticing. And I think the more, um, you know, if you are someone who sort of thinks of bees as like, maybe you picture a bumblebee, like a big fuzzy, um, loud bee, or you picture a honeybee, um, kind of going beyond that and thinking and like learning about the diversity of bees in your area and then noticing them. And there are like even, you know, ways to participate um, like citizen or community science projects that um, um, where you can actually help scientists collect data on, um, on different bee species that you see in your, in your surroundings, but learning about the diversity and noticing it, attending to it is important. And then how to support it. I mean, really it's the, luckily, even though everything is so complicated, the the best way to help bees is easy because it's planting for for bees you know it's planting fl- clean flowers that haven't you know that have not been treated with any I mean, insects uh, uh, pesticides um it's planting flowers wherever you can and so maybe you're someone who just has a little garden and you want to add some native flowers to attract um and, and um support um native pollinators maybe it's just changing you already do that and you want to change the way you garden a little bit for example a lot of native bees nest in um, like little leaf, like leaf mulch and areas of like messy parts of your garden or in stems that you leave up over the winter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not cutting everything back, not manicuring things too much. Uh, maybe you're, you have a huge lawn and you'd like to modify that. There's a big push for people to plant like bee lawns where they're, you know, still mowable, still neat and everything, but they have a lot more uh, diversity in them to support pollinators. Um, or maybe you have a, a, a huge area where you can plant a prairie, whatever it is. Like if you're planting 
for pollinators, then you're attracting them. And that's that's like the best thing that you can do because no matter honeybees, native bees, whatever, everyone needs more food and more is more. You know, like the more we have, the better, the less competition there is. And um, yeah. so Yeah. We talked a little bit about some of the struggles of um, this becoming a trendy thing. Yeah. But at the same time, that means there's so many resources online to like infographics yes. and documents. Yeah. I mean, on your website too, yep. where people can very easily figure out you know, what kinds of plants they should be yes. planting and, and um, how, the right process for doing it, doing yep. it correctly. Yeah, yeah, we have some great resources on our website, including planting guides that go over, you know, when things bloom. So one of the things we always encourage if you're thinking about like planting a pollinator garden is how to support those pollinators from early spring to late fall, not just that like the summer, the summer bloom where everything's happening, but what do you plant in early spring? What are some trees that maybe you plant one tree instead of a garden or something? And how, you know, think about how much early food you can yeah. provide through that for, you know, this kind of tricky climate we have in the spring. And then what blooms late in the fall? So if you think about like sunflowers or um, tithonia or sedum or different things that bloom late into the year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we're recording this right now in January. So yeah, it's a yeah. little bit hard to imagine some of this. But um, when this podcast comes and when this episode comes out in um, March, it's it's a lot more. Yeah. Of a, it'll be happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, so are there any resources for um, if, if students or if listeners wanted to learn more about ways they could advocate? in Minnesota for pollinators? Um, yes. Yeah, so our website has a lot of good resources for um, ways to help pollinators. And I would recommend Pollinate Minnesota, which is um, run by Erin Roop. And she does a ton of education and advocacy work and outreach work. And she is, it's a good resource. Her website is a really good resource for learning more oh. about what you can do. Great. Thanks yeah. so much, Bridget. I feel like this was bees for dummies. Like you, no. you are so very immersed in this world and I am so not. So I appreciate that you met me where I'm at and, and probably some of the listeners too. It's especially I, this whole podcast is trying to look at ways and spaces where humans and animals exist together mm-hmm. um, and seeing that there's a lot of beauty in that relationship, um, even though sometimes we've we've altered that and shifted it into something mm-hmm. that's not beautiful. And so um, your discussion of the Bee Veterans Program is especially uh, really inspiring yeah. for ways that we can um, cooperate and collaborate with yeah. the natural world around us. So yeah. thank you so much yeah, for everything thank you. you've done. It's great yeah, to it meet super you. Fun. <laughs> great to meet you too. Take care. Hi, this is Reed Nelson from Vegan East, an all-vegan bakery in Minneapolis and White Bear Lake. Come try our cinnamon rolls, cookies, cakes, and cupcakes. Thanks for listening to Seeing Animals.